The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner, or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs, and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. The following audio blogs can be found in written form at foundationsofreconstruction.com and have been produced into audio format by its authors. This audio blog titled, The Art of Homemaking, was written and recorded by Jessica Lambert on September 23, 2016. God had a perfect plan in motion from the very beginning. Part of that plan that was so intricate and so incredible was his creation of the woman. Women want to make things beautiful and inviting and cozy. We want to feed our families good, nourishing, healthy meals and send them off to conquer the world. We want the laundry to be clean and the dishes to be washed and our families to feel loved and to never doubt that love. Making a home out of a house is harder than most realize. It's not just the structure, it's the people living in that structure. It's the hopes, dreams, and heartaches of the people under that roof. It's tears, laughter, pain, forgiveness, brokenness, openness, and lots of hugs and kisses. Homemaking is an art. Proverbs 31, 10-31 paints a picture of a woman who has done her best to provide every comfort to her family while still teaching, being a good friend, and honoring God through everything she does in accordance with Colossians 3, 23-24. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Proverbs 31 is also an example of a mother who wants to give her son something magnificent. She is speaking to him truths and showing him what to look for in a future bride, homemaker, and helpmeet. What, my son, and what son of my womb, and what son of my vows, do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law, and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. Open your mouth for the speechless, and the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. As the homemaker and mother of this man, she wants to send him off on a good path. She does not want him to stumble and fall at the hands of strangers. Proverbs 31 is hard to read sometimes. We often think to ourselves, am I ever going to be good enough? No, you will never be good enough because we live in a fallen world and we are all going to painfully miss the mark. We are nothing without Christ. Yet, as we strive to serve God, we can strive to be the women, sisters, daughters, mothers, and homemakers God has made us to be. The woman portrayed in Proverbs 31 is the ultimate working wife and mother. She does everything, it seems, and still rises before the light of day with energy to keep going. It's simply incredible. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts in her, so he will know lack of gain. His heart safely trusts in her. He does not doubt her word. She is honorable as well as caring. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Oh, that one day we could all say this about our brothers, husbands, fathers, and neighbors. It is our duty to protect and care for those we love. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. 
Here she is, working and bringing in those things from faraway lands. We should be inspired to go to great lengths to make our homes comfortable and inviting for those outside of it as well as those living within its walls. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She is finding ways to make an income even though she does not work outside of the home. She considers her job, the calling of motherhood, as higher than an education or a career away from her family. Yet she is still capable of helping her husband provide and lessening his burden. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out at night. Her arms are strong for the tasks laid out before her. She does, she does not get squeamish and run from work. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes taste tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates, where he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Again, we see a running theme. She does not rest, it seems. She is constantly working with her hands. Her husband is known at the city gate and honored there. She doesn't fear for those living under the art of her homemaking, for she has clothed and fed them. My, what we can learn from this section alone. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Her husband is proud that she is his own and of the work she accomplishes. She has made her house a home. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. As women, we desire to be beautiful. We want to be admired, to be called pretty. But the Bible teaches us that while it is not wrong to desire beauty as we do, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. We are to fear the Lord God with a righteous fear. We are to place our bodies, our hearts, and our minds under his law and live accordingly. This is what we must desire above all things, and for that we will be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. The godly woman isn't going around telling everyone what she accomplished this week, or how hard she worked. She doesn't have to do that. People can see it when they look at her in her home and her family. It shines through in everything that she does. Homemaking is not easy. Nobody said it would be. By the grace of God, you will run your home and live it in it and seek the Lord in all that you do. In Christ, Jessica Lambert. The following audio blog, titled The Christian in Fiction, was written and recorded by Caitlin Smith on September 24, 2016. As Christians, we are to go into everything with a biblical epistemology, worldview, which should define our opinions, our likes, and what we think about I have a feeling that most people would agree, at least in principle, about this. Our worldview defines who we are and what we are. Do we take this stand in everything, even in the books we read? Do we pay attention to what we are reading when it comes to fiction? Do we pay attention to the content we are mentally ingesting? We are to do all things to the glory of God. Isaiah 43, verse 7, 1 Peter 4, verse 11. Our goal in life should be to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, Matthew 5, verse 16. If we truly believe this is God's will for us, then we will understand there are some things that we, as believers, can't read. And no, I'm not going to give you a list of authors or books to avoid. I don't want to be legalistic, read this, don't read that, a list of do's and don'ts. I want you to consider what you truly believe in the light of God's word and talk with your authority figures to find out what they are comfortable with you reading. Let's take a few things and analyze them, biblically. 
Do you believe magic is evil? Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 to 14. How about lust? James 1, verses 14 to 15. Adultery. Exodus 20, verse 14. Proverbs 6, verse 32. And Leviticus 20, verse 10. Illicit relationships. Deuteronomy 23, verse 17. Disobedience. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 2. Stealing. Exodus 20, verse 15. And Leviticus 19, verse 11. And lying. Exodus 20, verse 16. Proverbs 19, verse 19. Psalm 101, verse 7. Fornication. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 5. And Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. So we believe it is all a sin. Now, let me ask you this. Do you read books which glorify these things, even if they are so-called Christian fiction? There is no neutral ground. Matthew 12, verse 30. Christians must begin to understand this. If you believe in absolute truth, you also believe in absolute evil, black and white, with no gray areas involved. Let's now take disobedience. How many books have you read where a child deliberately disobeys the parent, and instead of punishment, receives reward? At times, the author may even make it appear as if the parent or other authority figure pushed the child into disobedience by their uncaring, overbearing, tyrannous abuse of authority. How many books have you read that glorify fornication and lust? And Christian romance novels are no different. They are filled with innuendos, with both the guy and girl lusting after one another in a sinful way. Matthew 5, verse 28. Inappropriate comments made, touches given, and desires expressed. Is this really what we want to be filling our minds with? What we would flee from in a real-life scenario? This should be our operating principle. What we would judge others for doing. We are supposed to guard our hearts and our minds. Proverbs 4, verse 23. And the Bible commands us to only think upon things which are true, pure, lovely, of good report, worthy of praise, and full of virtue. Philippians 4, verse 8. Can we honestly do this if we immerse our minds with thoughts of inappropriate sensual love and romance? Is this preparing us for a marriage that honors God one day? The romance novels that keep God at the center of a relationship and end in a God-glorifying marriage are few and far between. Now, we come to the issue of magic. If magic in this world is wrong, that is, if we condemn witches, wizards, fairies, and enchanted forests is wrong, isn't it still evil, even in fiction? Galatians 5, verses 19-21 Revelation 21, verse 8. Yes, I have heard the argument that that world is neutral, and as such, the magic used, the spells cast, the incantations said are all neutral. I've been told that the fantasy world is imaginary, and that there is no good or evil in it, because it is all imaginary. I've also been told that sometimes magic is used as a way to glorify God, because they are only using gifts God has given to them. I've already mentioned that there is no neutral ground. Matthew 12, verse 30. And as Christians, we should have a foundation for truth built upon God's word, so that something either brings glory to God or to the one who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. John 10, verse 10. But how about the imaginary fantasy world? Does it truly just not matter? What does scripture say? In Colossians 1, verses 12 through 17, we read, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, and whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created, that are in heaven, and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, or dominions, or principalities, or powers, all things were created by him, and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Do you see that? He has created all things. This includes the make-believe fantasy world, that invisible world created in the imagination where there are powers, 
be it good or evil, governing everything. And since God has created it, does it not also fall under his domain? Should we not still be submissive to his authority in this invisible, imaginary realm of good and evil? We are told in Psalm 139, verses 7-13, that there is no place we can go apart from God's ruling hand. His presence is everywhere, and his laws govern every facet of our world. Whither shall I go from my spirit? Or whither shall I flee from my presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely, the darkness shall cover me, and even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from me, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee, for thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. To give credit to God for giving us the gift of magic would be the same as giving credit to God for giving a doctor the gift of performing a quick and painless abortion. Isn't the irony obvious? God is the same. Hebrews 13, verse 8. He does not change. Malachi 3, verse 6. Nor does he contradict himself or lie. Numbers 23, verse 19. He would never give us a gift to use that he expressly forbids. Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 to 14. Isaiah 47, verses 12 to 15, and James 1, verse 17. Witchcraft is so abominable and serious a sin that he commands witches to be put to death under Mosaic law. Exodus 22, verse 18, Leviticus 20, verses 27. Can we then glorify God by disobeying him? For truly he who loves me keeps my commands. John 14, verse 15. Are we keeping his commands when we do that which he expressly declares is evil in his sight? all the while claiming we do it for his glory? We need to understand that evil is evil. Never should Christians use evil in an attempt to glorify God. Additionally, we must also realize that we are what we read. Oftentimes, we look up to the characters in the books we read and, even if unconsciously, attempt to emulate their lives. Do we want to follow in the footsteps of those that will lead us to sin? Do we really need more examples or help in this area? Aren't we already good enough at behaving as what we are innately? fallen human beings with a sin nature from birth, Romans 3, verse 23. May we continually be reforming in this area, and may we always seek to honor our Savior in every area of our lives. This audio blog, titled Biblical Purity, was written and recorded by Caitlin Smith on September 29, 2016. Many of us think of purity only in relation to our interactions with the opposite gender, but there are so many more aspects of the concept of purity. To be pure is to be innocent to be chaste, to be modest, to conduct ourselves so as not to draw and do attention to our actions, to do nothing with thoughts of vainglory for ourselves, but only with thoughts to bring glory to God. Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines purity as freedom from guilt or the defilement of sin, innocence as purity of heart or life, chastity, freedom from contamination by illicit sexual connection, freedom from any sinister or improper views as a purity of motives or design. The first part of Webster's definition is freedom from guilt or the defilement of sin, which is a beautiful foundation for those desiring to live a pure life. Purity must begin at the cross of Calvary, Psalm 23, verses 3 through 4, and 1 John 1, verse 9. We can only ever be truly free from sin and guilt as we humble ourselves before Christ, James 4, verse 10, with much prayer and supplication, Psalm 51, verse 10. We, as a sinful human race, Romans 3, verse 23, can never be truly pure without trusting in the atoning work of Christ upon the cross, 1 Peter 2, verse 24. It was there that he took our sins and paid the punishment for them, 
1 John 2 verse 2, so he can wash us, and until we be whiter than snow, Isaiah 1 verse 18, and Psalm 51 verse 7. If our sins have been washed away by Christ's blood, Hebrews 9 verse 12, then out of our desire to love and please him, we will endeavor to live perfectly pure lives, John 14 verse 15. Yes, we will struggle, going back and forth between our sin nature and our spirit, Matthew 26 verse 41 and 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. But because we will have the blessed Lord to lean upon, the struggle becomes easier because we no longer have to do it all in our own strength. Philippians 4 verse 13. As he sanctifies and brings convictions into our hearts about areas we need to purify. John 17 verse 17, 2 Timothy 2 verse 21, and Hebrews 13 verse 12. He is slowly transforming our lives to become more like him. 1 Peter 2 verse 21, preparing us to be an example to the believers. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. And we can look forward to the day when he calls the pure, blessed. Matthew 5, verse 8. Let us now turn our attention to purity of thought. Have you ever heard the saying, what you think is what you are? Scripture exhorts us to think on whatsoever things are pure. Philippians 4, verse 8. If we are allowing impure thoughts in our minds, our speech and our actions will soon follow suit. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Romans 12, verse 12. This means turning our thoughts away from what God deems as sin, James 4, verse 7, and turning them towards thoughts of truth, honesty, loveliness, and virtue, Philippians 4, verse 8. But our thoughts can't be pure if we have immersed ourselves in the world's impure culture, 1 Peter 5, verse 8. If we are allowing impurity into our lives through the books we read, the songs we sing, the movies we watch, the friends we hang out with, and the places we go— all of it will make our struggle towards purity considerably harder. Titus 2 verse 12. We are commanded to be in the world, but not of it. 1 John 2 verses 15 through 17. We are commanded to not conform to it. Romans 12 verse 2. And at times, we make our struggles against our sin nature harder by allowing ourselves to become enamored with this world and the sensations inherent therein. A third aspect of purity to consider is purity of motive. Do we do things for God's glory or for our own? Isaiah 6 verse 3. Do we want to be recognized? Do we do things to further God's kingdom or our own materialistic world? Isaiah 42 verse 8. We have been told in the word of God that we are to do all things from a sincere desire to do the will of God. Mark 10 verse 45. And thus we cannot make pleasing men our driving motive. Ephesians 6 verse 6. As we are apparently from all outward appearances, serving our church's congregation by washing the dishes, what are our thoughts? What are the motives we bring to the task? Are we wanting to get a certain someone's attention? Hey, look at me! I'm such a good servant, I am doing all these millions of dishes all by myself. Are we doing it so other people will see just how good we are? Or to make them think, that person must really be seeking to follow God? Or are we doing it without thinking? Because we see that it needs to be done, and it is a way that we, as young people, can serve the congregation effectively. Matthew 23, verse 11, and 1 John 3, verse 18. How about cleaning our room? Are we doing it because we just know that if it gets clean, we can do whatever it is we want to do? Are we doing it because we have a desire to honor our parents' wishes? Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3, and Colossians 3, verse 20. A fourth component of purity is purity of emotions and heart. I know many young people who all say they are saving themselves, affection, speech, touch, for that special someone we all pray the Lord will bring into our lives one day. To be able to stand pure before our spouse on our wedding day is a glorious attainment and a tangible picture of Christ and his bride, the church. 
Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27. But all too often I see emotions getting more tangled and twisted together than a neglected ball of yarn. What happens when does good friends become something more? We cannot let our emotions run away with us. They cannot guide our hearts and thus allow our thoughts to become impure. We have been commanded to guard our hearts. Proverbs 4, verse 23. I would encourage you to search out ways to keep from sinning in your heart. Romans 13, verse 14. In my family, we girls aren't allowed to talk one-on-one with a young man. In such conversation, there must always be another person mature enough to hold us accountable for our speech and our actions. Not because my parents don't trust me or the young men I would be talking to, but they want to guard against any appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22, and 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. I absolutely believe guys and girls can have edifying friendships. Some of the best, most thought-provoking conversations I have ever participated in included young men and young ladies. Such interaction combines two different ways of expressing yourself, two different ways of thinking, two different ways of logic and reason, all making for intense, interesting talk. But in so many ways, it is these same differences that can make guy-girl scenarios a nightmare. If we have immersed ourselves in the sensuality of this world, with cheesy romance novels that end happily ever after, and movies that depict lustful relationships, then it is no wonder we struggle in this area. It is no surprise that we are always misunderstanding comments made and attentions given. And while I believe that this is most likely one of the hardest parts of life for young people, where we tend to mess up and make mistakes... I do not want to put undue emphasis upon it, because, truth be told, if we are living to please Christ and relying upon Him alone, if we are consciously thinking pure thoughts and turning from the impure thoughts and motives, then others will know you are striving to be Christ-like and will interact with you in such a manner. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. May the Lord continue to sanctify all of us in this manner. The following audio blog, titled The Lord's Day, was written and recorded by Caitlin Smith, on September 24th, 2016. Have you ever stopped to wonder why we rest one day out of our seven-day week? Have you ever wondered why most people have some days off of work and a lot of businesses are closed? Even those who are not saved seem to cease from labor and take the time to relax. Why is this? We first see that resting one day a week is a creation mandate, not just a commandment for believers. It is first mentioned in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Genesis 2, verse 2. God did this to set an example to us. He didn't need to rest. Isaiah 40, verse 28. He is the Almighty God. Genesis 17, verse 1. He is the great God, and he is mighty in power. Psalm 147, verse 5. He knew it would be best for us to rest one day a week, to cease from labor, and give our tired bodies a chance to rest. He did it for us. Mark 2, verse 27. Anyone who has ever put in a productive day of hard work outside, in the heat, with the sun beating down mercilessly, knows the truth of needing a day of rest, and understands the blessing of allowing tired muscles to recuperate and sunburned skin to return to normal. God commanded the nation of Israel to observe the Sabbath when he gave the Ten Commandments to Moses at Sinai after he led the children of Israel out of Egypt. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, 
thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gate. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. Exodus 20, verses 8-11 God calls it holy to himself. It is the day we are to consecrate to him, a day which is to serve as a sign of a covenant between God and his people, Ezekiel 20, verse 12. The Baptist Catechism I have learned states that the fourth commandment requires the keeping holy to God such set times as he hath appointed in his word, expressly one whole day in setting, to be a holy Sabbath to himself. Deuteronomy 5, verse 12, and Leviticus 19, verse 30. Later in history, we see that the consecration of the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week, or Saturday, is now observed on Sunday, the first day of the week. What happened? Why is Sunday now the day set apart and sanctified and called the Lord's Day? The first and only reference we have of the Lord's Day is found in Revelation 1, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. In the New Testament of Scripture, we see believers meeting and gathering together on Sunday, not Saturday. Acts 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Why this change? The change came about when Christ defeated death and rose from the grave on the day after the Sabbath day, Sunday. John 20, verse 1, Luke 24, verse 1, and Mark 16, verse 2. As Christ appeared to his people during his days on earth, we find it mentioned that he appeared on the first day of the week. John 20, verses 19 through 21. But the old commandment wasn't done away with. Christ still commanded that we set apart one day out of seven to worship him. Isn't it glorious to gather together as a corporate body of believers and celebrate the resurrection of Christ Jesus? To worship the perfect and triune God. To worship Christ Jesus, who came to earth as God in the form of man. Philippians 2, 6. To take away the sins of his people. John 1, verse 29. Truly, it is the day he has made, and we should rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118, verse 24. We are still required to hold his day in holiness to him, to sanctify it by a holy resting, to rest even from such worldly employments as are lawful on other days, and spending the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. We are forbidden to carelessly perform our duties. Ezekiel 22, verse 26. Profane the day by idleness, Acts 20, verse 7, and to do what is outright sinful, Jeremiah 17, verse 21. We are to refrain from all worldly thoughts, actions, and speech, Nehemiah 13, verses 15 and 17. We have been given by God six days of the week for our own employment. Surely we can follow the Lord's example and teaching by resting on the one day he has set apart for himself. Surely we can set aside all our grievances, all our plans, all our desires, and give the Lord the first part of our week. What do you talk about on Sunday when you gather with your friends? Do you speak of the latest movie that you watched? Do you speak of the latest song? Or does your speech build each other up? 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. Do you speak of what you learned in the sermon? We should aim to find out what we can be praying about for each other. We should glean from each other that which the Lord is teaching each of us. We should aim to seek out and follow the will of God to take his thoughts after him, as my pastor so often says. And the only way we are going to do that is by a study of his word, with a desire to truly seek him and do his will. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network.
Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.